Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. Father, we love your word, and we love your beloved son, and we want to see him today, and we want to watch him. We want to be like him. We want to hear him teach us. We want to hear him uh, see how he treats people. We want to see how, you, your, 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 how lo- much you love him. And I ask, Lord, for eyes that see and ears that hear. And we would present to you a soft heart, for we are truly your disciples, Maybe 2,000 years have separated us, Jesus, but we would, we would be right there following behind you. We give ourselves to you today and to the word. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Jesus has done a miracle that it, it's, it's really the, the final miracle. It's, it's the one that gets him killed. Uh, he has come to Bethany, which is just over the hill from Jerusalem, and he has raised from the dead a man who was in the tomb that, that the whole community knows, who's very uh, well positioned in that Jerusalem society, so that all the top leaders are actually at the funeral. So you've got this very dignified funeral. And Jesus shows up at, this, at the wake, basically, that, you know, the days of mourning. After four days that Lazarus has been in the tomb, and he if you recall, it says, Lazarus, here, now. <laughs> and up comes Lazarus, all wrapped, you know, in the whole thing. And all the people see this, a multitude, a crowd. The word is crowd. It's there. A crowd is watching this. And it just goes like a shockwave, particularly the dangerous part for, the, for certain people is that it went through the religious community. You've got top leaders there, and people begin to, to, to come and become Jesus' disciples. Out of the top religious leadership in the priesthood and, and in, the, in the Pharisaical ranks, all of this. And so that, with that, a, a group got together, the to, some of the top Pharisee leaders, along with the, with the high priest and his family. This is the most unlikely uh, gathering of people. Uh, the Pharisees are, are Bible believers. Uh, they're the ultra-Orthodox. They're the uh, tithing on mint and cumin. And, and this group over here is a family that purchased from the Romans, uh, and actually their great ancestor and before them, from, from Antiochus Epiphanes, the one that's the model for the Antichrist. He sold the high priesthood. He's the first one, uh, the, the Greek ruler under, uh, under, uh, from, from down from Alexander the Great. So this rotten family who uses the uh, temple as, a, as, a, as an industry, is now meeting with these ultra-Orthodox. <laughs> How do you get those two together? Anger. People rally sometimes, and anger will bring strange people together. Um, but that's not God's way. He puts us together as the family of God in, our, in love. Well, these two have met, and, they, and these two groups, and they have, they've come up with a plot. And uh, it, <laughs> the word leaked out and got right to Jesus, and he quickly left, and he went north, and we're going to see that, uh, went about uh, 18 miles north, and uh, was, was in hiding. Uh, so here we pick up John eleven fifty four. 54. 
Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. I'll explain all this in a minute. So they were seeking for Jesus, and they were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. So there's a warrant out. The word has gone out. Uh, he's, 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 he's wanted uh, for, under, for arrest. Chapter 12, verse 1. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume, of pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of, the, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Now, does that, does that, wouldn't you think Jesus could find a better disciple to be the treasurer? <laughs> Do you suppose he doesn't know? Of course he knows. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. 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 Therefore, Jesus said, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. All right, here we go. Listening carefully to God. If you'll recall, Mary is the one who listened carefully. While her sister Martha was busy serving the guests, she sat at Jesus' feet and pondered his every word. You don't remember the story. I'm about to read it to you. The Gospel of Luke describes that exchange. Let's hear it again. Now, as they were traveling along, he entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations. And she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. Now, let me stop there for a minute. In her defense, you have, uh, you have Jesus and his 12, so that's 13. You got Mary, Martha, Lazarus, that's a 16. And then who knows who else? has come along because he doesn't ever travel alone. He's got a group everywhere he goes. So you have no idea how large this is. So you can kind of defend Martha a little bit and say, well, wait a minute, there's got to be a lot to do. Now, someone came up last night and pointed out, well, this is a fairly wealthy family, isn't it? It, it, it? Every appearance is. So didn't they have servants? Well, yeah. So she's probably managing the dinner like that. And she wants Mary, Mary to help her. Where's Mary? Well, Mary's where, where is she? She's seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his every word. But the Lord answered and said to Martha, 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 you are worried and bothered about so many things. 
But only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Unlike her sister, Mary, pardon me, unlike her sister, Mary stopped to listen. Unlike the 12, she let him say whatever he wanted to say. She didn't try to argue with him or correct his theology like Peter did. You remember that? Never, that's never going to happen to you. You know, after Jesus said, I'm going to, be, I'm going to die and be, you know, be crucified and all. And, and, and Peter won't do that again. How, how did the Lord respond to him? Get thee behind me, Satan. Yeah, that, that one he won't forget. Uh, so it, was, yeah, it didn't go well. And in, that, in the passage we're reading today, we discover that she didn't ignore the sad predictions he made about his death. Other than Simeon, the old man who prophesied over Jesus when he was a baby, Mary appears to be the only disciple who understood that it was God's will that Jesus die violently for our sins. Did you hear what I just said? None of them got it. None of them got it at all. It's really remarkable. And boy, they sure didn't get the resurrection. No one expected it. I mean, the women who went out that morning only did so because the men, those old men you know, uh, had done such a bad job of, of putting, preparing his body for burial. They were going to go out and, and fix it. Uh, so they, they didn't come out because they thought he'd be resurrected. When they came back and said, he's alive, he's gone, uh, they all went, who stole a body? Oh, man, somebody stole a body. And, 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 and even when Peter came, even when Peter came and said, I've seen him, they wouldn't believe. I mean, if you think you're skeptical, would you, would you be that skeptical? I mean, this is not a bunch of superstitious religious idiots. You know, we often picture them, well, they're just back, back there, they believed anything. My foot they did. These are Jews. These are hard thinkers. These are not gullible idiots. These are, these are and, and they, don't, they don't believe a word of it. <laughs> Even when Jesus tells them, you know. Uh, so this is, this is, she is the only one other than Simeon who actually realized you must die. You must die. I'll show you. And it's not because Jesus didn't try to teach people that truth. Over and over again, his disciple and the, and the, he told the disciples and the multitudes that the Father had sent him to die for them. But no one listened, probably because they didn't like what he was saying. Yet this one woman who only weeks earlier had undoubtedly helped to prepare her brother's body for burial came over to where Jesus was seated at a dinner table and began to prepare him for burial as well. How did she know that he was going to die a few days later? She knew because he had said so. And she had listened carefully to every word he spoke. You and I must do the same. We must listen carefully to every word God speaks, even when we don't like what we hear. It can be a matter of life and death. I want to read tell you this story. I want you to see it. It's remarkable. Both groups, that's be the, the chief priests and the Pharisees, accepted the high priest's proposal that they, ha- they were going to kill him. And from that day onward, they worked together on a plan to kill Jesus. Someone warned him about their plot. And he quickly left the area and moved to a small city about 18 miles north. The city, which John identifies as Ephraim, may have been the ancient city of Ophrah, 
modern Tai El Taibe. Uh, you can go on Google Earth. This is it's so much fun to do that. You should try. Get the one on the computer, not your little phone or your little iPad and stuff. It, it, it's a, get get this thing. And I went there. I saw it. I mean, you can literally see that the, the, these towns and the, and the roads and the whole bit. Uh, located near Bethel on a road leading down toward the Jordan River. It's off on a side road that's already beginning into the wilderness area. In that remote place, Jesus would have been hidden from the pilgrims walking on the main highway toward Jerusalem for Passover. Since he had ministered before in Judea, there may have been believing families in the area who loved him. John's statement, and he stayed there with the disciples, is usually understood to mean that the, that the 12 went to that place with him. But it could also have another meaning. John may be telling us that the disciples in that city took Jesus and his 12 into their homes. In other words, the believers in the area gave him refuge. Now, what's significant is we're going to find out that this is, we're about a month to two weeks before Passover. What happens in that time, and I'll, I'll, I'll describe it in some detail in a minute, is that people begin to move toward Jerusalem. And they actually have purified pathways that go through Israel. So somebody goes through and makes sure there's no dead bones, because you can't touch any dead bones. Uh, they, they, uh, they cleanse the paths. And so there's a north-south road uh, that, that would have been used. But this one that he's on is off a little, a little spur of a road. It goes all, winds down through the wilderness to, to, to Jericho. He's off and out of the way. He's in hiding, at least seclusion. And I think the disciples there, because he's ministered much in Judea, we've been told that, so they have taken the, them into their homes and are, are caring for them there. And John says, and the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem from out of the countryside before the Passover so that they might purify themselves. Each year, preparations for Passover began about one month ahead of the feast. Everyone, men and women, were required by the law of Moses to travel to Jerusalem for the, that feast. So roads, bridges, and wells must be repaired. Tombs must be freshly whitewashed. I'm not making this up, by the way. I'm not guessing. Uh, this is what they did freshly whitewashed so no one would accidentally touch a dead body or anything or anyone who had touched a dead body. If you, if you were to bump with your foot a, a grave by accident, you are now ceremonially unclean. And there's a whole week of cleansing that has to go on or you can't enter the temple. And if you have, you know, how does a farmer not touch dead things? You know, you've got animals, you've got slaughter, you've got all kinds of stuff. So they're all unclean. And they have to go through this purification so they can even go to the temple for Passover. If someone had contacted something dead, there was a cleansing procedure they must go through before entering the temple. The procedure required a full week to complete and it involved washing their clothes and taking ritual baths. Remember, we call them mikvah. When you go to, when you go to Israel, you go to Jerusalem... Uh, there's like a hundred mikvahs just around the temple area. They're all, when we, we, we can stand there, just mikvah, 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 all these places. There's those, remember the steps down? You immerse yourself, steps up, so there's all this ritual purification. Also, two weeks before Passover, those who planned to present to the Lord the tithes of their flocks and herds had to select the animals. So by making the simple statement that Passover was near, 
John lets us know we're in the final two weeks before Passover when the roads of Israel are full of pilgrims and the city of Jerusalem was swelling with people arriving for ritual purification. During those busy weeks of preparation, the conversations in the courtyard of the temple were often about Jesus. People asked one another, what do you think? Do you think he won't come to the feast at all? Everyone knew Jesus was in danger. The chief priests and Pharisees had published a warrant for his arrest, and the order demanded that anyone who knew where he was must report his location to the religious leaders so they could arrest him. You have to see, this is a dangerous climate. He's now a wanted man. So, what does he do on Friday before the Passover, which would begin that year on the following Thursday evening? In spite of the danger, Jesus boldly walked into Bethany. <laughs> this is our man right there. And word of his arrival spread like wildfire. On one of the days while he was there, possibly the following Tuesday, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus provided a special meal for him and his disciples. The meal was not served in their home, but at another location in town. Matthew and Mark's gospel tells us that the event was held at the home of a man named Simon the leper. Now, why do you think we call him Simon the leper? Was it, do you think he was a leper? I think he had been. I think Jesus healed him. Can't you see it? So you've got all of these people. Who knows how big this dinner is? And apparently Mary, Martha, and Lazarus paid for it. But it was held over at another person's house. Maybe it's a bigger house. You got room for people. Maybe he's got a great big tree. You know, everybody can gather under. Who knows what the reason is? But it's over at, 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 at Simon's house, who's, who's obviously been healed by the Lord. During the meal, Mary came up to him while he was seated, actually reclining, at a table. That's what you did. You, you leaned on your right arm, you know, and you got a table about 18 inches high. Uh, at triclinium, that's the whole approach. And poured an extremely expensive perfume over, first over his head and then on his feet. After that, she proceeded to wipe the oil off his feet with her hair. John mentions the type of perfume she used. He said it was genuine nard, which is a sweet-smelling oil pressed from the roots of a, of stem, and stems of a plant that grows in the mountains of northern India. Mark mentions that she actually broke the neck of an alabaster vial to open it. One of the real amazing things to me when, we, when, we went to, when I went into the Israel Museum in, in, in Israel the first time, I went into the glass section where they have all of the ancient glass. And, you know, we, we think, well, did they have glass? Not only did they have glass, they knew how to blow glass and make gorgeous uh, vases and cups. And I mean, you have flowers, you got birds on them. I mean, it, it's, don't, don't think to yourself some crude little item. They, they have beautiful things, beautiful things for women, all their hair things and their combs. and their. We keep looking back and thinking, well, they were, you know, they were just barely out of caves back then, you know, just like, mm, you know. If I, if I took you camping and I took your telephone and your glasses away, you are now a first century person. You follow that? There is, they were as smart as you are. They're as philosophical as you are. They're as skeptical as you are. They're just like you. It's just you without your glasses or your cell phone. Okay, so they're really smart people. And so anyway, she's got this gorgeous, uh, she's got this alabaster. Alabaster is some kind of stone, isn't it? Translucent stone kind of thing. 
And, and it clearly it's been plugged, uh, and she actually breaks the, the alabaster vial. Judging by Judas Iscariot's angry response, the value of that perfume was equal to a year's income for an average worker. What does an average worker around here make? Well, if you just have a normal kind of basic employment job, uh, what would you make? I don't know, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000? So this, this is the oil that's worth that kind of thing. This is heirloom sort of stuff. This is not just a, a little perfume. He exclaimed, Judas did, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii, a denarius was a day's wage for labor, and given to the beggars? He doesn't say to the poor. He says to the beggars, those who crouch by the way. This was not the first time the perfume had been poured on Jesus. Perfume had been. A woman with a troubled past had poured perfume on his head, but not his, pardon me, his feet, but not his head. Then she had, to, had wet his feet with her tears and wiped them clean with her hair. Do you remember that? Yeah, that was earlier. That was a year or two earlier in his ministry up north in the Galilee. After his feet had been washed, she poured perfume oil on them and kissed them. Her actions were an expression of profound sorrow for her sins. Obviously, she must have heard him preach about the mercy of God. And in this manner, she was begging for forgiveness which indeed she received. Remember that? Go, your sins have been forgiven you. You know, and the, his host goes, what are you doing forgiving sins? And he says, who, which is it easier to, I mean, who, who would love more? Uh, would it, uh, and he, well, he sinned the most because they hadn't washed his feet. He was, in a, he was in a Pharisee's house and they was there to criticize him. And so this is when that happened. That woman came in and wept over her, his feet, washed his feet with her, with her tears, and then wiped it with her hair, cleaned her his feet because they hadn't, and then poured perfumed oil and kissed them. It was beautiful. You know, she's, she's, and she had a very troubled past. But Mary, a Bethany, was led by the Holy Spirit to anoint Jesus with perfumed oil for an entirely different reason. She was symbolically preparing his dead body for burial. Just as Lazarus had been washed and anointed with perfumed oil for his burial only weeks earlier, she was in effect telling Jesus, I know we're going to lose you. And we may not be able to bury you properly when that awful moment comes. So I want to care for you now, but I can't. Mary's actions were an expression of her deep devotion to Christ. But they were also an expression of the father's love for his son. With that oil, Mary was prophesying. Not only was she anointing, uh, pardon me, was she, was she announcing that Jesus was going to die. But through her, the heavenly father was telling his son how much he cherished him. Jesus' body would soon be savaged as he endured the process of the crucifixion. Violent men who had no respect for him would treat him shamefully. But in that wonderful moment, as Mary began to pour oil on his head and feet, the father was honoring him and assuring him that he would see that his body was buried properly. 750 years earlier, 
through the prophet Isaiah, God the Father had described in detail the death that Jesus was about to die. But in that same prophecy, he had also said he would honor his son's dead body. He promised that he would be buried, quote, with a rich man in his death. Do you remember that prophecy? I'm actually in the process of memorizing that whole section now. I'm on chapter 53 and I'm into 52. It's simply one of the mountaintops in the Bible. You know, there's just certain things that are just absolutely mountaintop uh, passages and, and chapters. And, and this is one of them. I mean, this is the one that says, you know, he was, he was crushed and pierced and bruised for our, for our sorrows and our iniquities. A man acquainted with sorrows. You remember all this? Uh, uh, all we like sheep have gone astray. Have turned every one to his own way, but the Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of his all. And then it says, if he will present himself as a guilt offering. I mean, it is so. By, by the way, it's a big discussion in Israel right now. Isaiah 53. It's on the, on, there's a website going hot on this. They're really discussing this. In the past, they've actually ignored 53. You just skip it. <laughs> it's so potent, you skip it. You just, we don't know what it means. <laughs> well, they're talking. Hallelujah. But it, it couldn't be more vivid. But then it says, if he will do these things, the Lord says, I will, with a, because he did no sin, he said he will, he will be with a rich man in his death. In other words, and then he talks about the resurrection. But I, I will care for him. Though they wanted to bury him with the poor, I will honor him in his death. Mary's prophesying. Over him. He promised that he would be buried with a rich man in his death. Mary, knowingly or unknowingly, was allowing the Father to remind Jesus of that promise. She was allowing the Father to assure his Son of his love and to thank him for the sacrifice he was about to make. And who can doubt that the sweet fragrance of that oil? still lingered on Jesus a few days later as he hung on the cross, a sweet reminder of God's love for him in his darkest hour. You can't get that out, that oil. Have you ever put perfume on? You know, that real, you know, right now when you buy perfume, they cut it with alcohol. You know, you just use a little bit of the real oil and, and you know, it depends on how much you want to pay. Well, you get straight oil, straight perfumed oil, pour that on your hair. I mean, we got a pound of it here, so we're going to soak you with that oil and pour it on your feet. Try to get that out. Try to wash that off. You're going to smell like that for weeks, aren't you? This probably happened two days before the, he was in the upper room and then went out that night. As he hung on the cross, I believe, savaged that sweet oil was still there. Jesus understanding perfectly what that moment meant replied to Judas protest that the oil had been wasted with these words leave her alone let me tell you what the greek says let her go i don't know what to do with that so i didn't i didn't dare translate that it says let her go did he grab her hand what did he do what did that monster do Leave her alone, so she may keep it for the day of my burial. 
If we take those words literally, it appears that Mary may not have emptied the entire container of oil. After all, that alabaster vial held an entire pound of perfume. So some of it may have been left over. In that case, Jesus' statement to Judas would have meant, let her alone so that she may keep, it, keep the rest of it until the day of my burial. Indeed, a group of women, which may or may not have included Mary of Bethany, went out to Jesus' tomb on the morning of his resurrection to put spices and perfumes on his body. Do you recall? Those two old men, uh, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, two Sanhedrin members, two of these top Jews, you know who I'm, we're, we're saying are coming over and believing in him? Those two men went out and got his body. I, I just, I would so love to see that. These two old men taking this body off the cross with all of its gore, all of the, oof. And then it says that Nicodemus came out with 75 pounds of aloes and myrrh. And they wrapped the body, but the women stood at a distance and they watched and they were disgusted with the, with the job the old men did. It is. And so they said, we're coming back uh, after the Sabbath. We were coming back and we're going to do it right. And that's why they came out to the tomb. So they're bringing the spices and the perfumes and they're going to properly honor his dead body. Uh, is why they came out. Nothing, absolutely nothing, reveals our attitude toward God more quickly than the way we respond when he says something we don't like. Do we argue? Do we whine? Do we try to negotiate a compromise? Do we bargain with him, hoping to change his mind? I can say yes to all of those. Or do we say, yes, sir, may it be done to me according to your word. Let's practice. Yes, sir. May it be done to me according to your word. By the way, who am I quoting there? Mary, Jesus' mother. When the angel came and said, you are going to be supernaturally pregnant. Uh, out, of, out of wedlock, she knew all of the repercussions, boy. And they, they came. She had to leave town. I mean, she got out of town. That's what the whole thing was with Elizabeth. She had to leave. She said to him, yes, sir. May it be done to me according to your word. Obedience really isn't obedience until I do something I don't want to do, only because he asked me to do it. A surrendered heart trusts him and tries to determine exactly what he wants so it can obey. But a proud heart wants to control the situation. It wants God's help, but not his leadership. Isn't that the issue? We want so many people, many people want God's help. What do I have to do? What prayer do I have to pray? Do, I mean, if I give you a $1,000 love gift, I mean, what will it do so I can get what I need? They're not asking for leadership. They're asking for, 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 for either riches or health or they're trying to get from God. And he is a source, but that's the wrong attitude. Our heart is to be surrendered to him, to trust him and love him. And then, yes, of course, he heals us and he provides for us and he blesses us. But it's, it's, it's meant to come from the heart here. Today, we'll look at three important sources of God's word to us. Through each of these, he speaks to us, and we must listen carefully. Even when he says something we didn't want to hear. His prophetic word, his written word, and his incarnate word. Would you say those three with me? His prophetic word, his written word, and his incarnate word. First of all, his prophetic word. 
The Holy Spirit speaks directly to humans in many different ways. Yes, there are dramatic moments when he speaks so loudly no one could miss it. But normally, recognizing his voice is a skill each of us must develop by trial and error. Did you hear trial and error? If you're going to learn to walk with God, if you're going to learn to hear his voice, you're going to have to try at times. I think it's God. It's always going to have this element to it. I think it's God. I'm not absolutely sure, but I think it is. And if you say, until I'm absolutely positive, I won't move, you're done in your growth. You have to be willing to say, okay, I, I think it is. Here we go. And if you make a mistake, so what? You made a mistake. That does not mean anything other than you just, you're learning. I've made them all. I've had to apologize for all sorts of things. So, and, but that's how you go, well, that wasn't it. And now you know. Because you see, this intuitive sense of what, what the Lord is saying to us, it's almost like a body memory. It's, it's like, it's, it's, there's a sense of like, well, that was his voice, but that was apparently mine. You know, or someone else's. You, you learn to discern the sense. And you do it partly by just trial and error. By having the guts to step out and try. There's not a pride in this. Doesn't mean you're dumb. Doesn't mean you're bad. Doesn't mean anything. It means you're learning. You're a child, a son or daughter, learning to hear your father's voice. It's how it's done. Normally, recognize that voice is a skill we must develop by trial and error. The more we try to listen and obey the more we learn to discern which voice is his and which is not. Each time we step out and obey what we've heard, we grow in faith and our capacity to hear increases. The reverse is also true. The less we listen or obey, the less faith and the less capacity we have to hear. Stepping into the realm of the prophetic is like a muscle that must be strengthened through exercise. Now, you may say, well, I've been so long not doing it, I suppose there's nothing left. No. Uh, you, the, Paul would say to Timothy, stir up the gift that's within you. you it, it, he doesn't take away his Holy Spirit. So you can step into these things at any point you finally decide to do so. You fo did you follow what I said? So there's no, no saying, well, I've been so long at this, I'm just... No, well, then the time to start now. Let's not waste the rest of our life. Let's just start now. Start moving now. You know, it's funny. You can let certain areas. I'll have, very, I'll have gifts of the Spirit that I sort of, you know, I move in for a season and then I kind of put them on a shelf. It's like, you know, other things are needed. And uh, something maybe draws me back and I need to move in this gift. And then, you know, like, wow, where was that? I forgot. <laughs> I, I, I can do that, you know, if, if I'll step into it and begin to, to let it come, and out it comes. It will for you, too. The giver of all gifts dwells within you. Did you hear that? It's, I didn't make that up. The giver of all gifts dwells within you. And so you begin to stir up those things of the, of, the, of the prophetic. The real problem with God's prophetic word comes when he says something we don't like. Either he corrects us, or he asks us to do something frightening or humbling. That's when our character comes to play. Are we honest or will we twist God's word to mean something else? Are we humble? Or will, we, will we do the selfless thing he asks? Are we courageous? Will we step out and do something uncertain or unsafe? Are we submitted 
Well, we allow him to correct us when we wander off the path. Listen to Proverbs. Would you read this out loud with me? My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves. Even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. Who does God correct? Those he loves, his children. Yeah, and of course, this is Solomon talking to his son, but it's, it's God speaking to, uh, to his, his sons and daughters. You have to be willing to let God correct you. In his love for us, he will speak the truth to us. He is not being unkind or cruel. Being reproved by him is actually a normal part of the walk. I, last night, in the, in, the, in the worship service, the Lord spoke to me. He said, I'm, I'm the God who holds your future. He said, I, I have tomorrow. And he said, and I don't need your help. Because... What am, what am I doing? I'm planning. I'm, uh, I'm planning things. He said, um, I have things in my hand. They're very delicate. And you will mess it up. Leave it alone. Okay. That's not a compliment. <laughs> Happens to be quite accurate. He knows who he's dealing with. I was thinking to myself on the way down here. If it weren't for the Holy Spirit and the Lord's, Lord in my life, I would be a terror. I got a will that would bend steel. Thank heavens he's constantly, he's not cruel with me. He's not unkind. Is he saying that to me to be mean? He loves me. He's talking like a father who knows, who knows you've got a pretty stubborn kid right here. And I got to say this clean and sweet. You listening to me, he says, you leave this alone. You're going to mess it up. You're going to do some real damage. Stop it. Why? So I don't do damage to, my, to, my, to me, my family, to you, to who knows? Is that, a, is that loving? You bet it's loving. You bet it's loving. And because I trust him and I know why he does these things, I don't receive it bitterly. I, 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 yes, sir. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Here we go again, you know. <laughs> That's hallelujah. A, re, a real word from God is not always affirming or comforting. It always flows from love. It's never cruel. Never cruel. He's never, he never belittles you. He corrects you. There's a real difference. But love may require our heavenly father to confront something that is wrong or destructive. Or his love for someone else may may ask us to put ourselves at risk for them. God's love has just led a, a team clear to the other side of the planet. And even then, a 15-hour bus ride out into the most remote places of these <laughs> up switchbacks in a bus. Somebody said six inches from the edge. And then down switchbacks on the other side of the mountain all, all the way. Uh, they landed yesterday, they're home, our team from Myanmar, and, and amen. Uh, what, a, what, a, what a wonderful thing. That, that was quite the mission. Nobody was, being, 
Nobody was being cute. Nobody just said, well, let's go to some strange place. No, we were led to do this. God used it powerfully. Many came to Christ. The churches were instructed. But it was dangerous. Why do we do it? Because the, God's love told us to do that. He spoke to us because he loved them. Will he ever put you at risk? Yes, he will. And if safety and comfort are your great, are your great goals in life, you'll have a real hard time walking with him. He does not mind using you hard. He doesn't. He'll work you hard. Why? Eternal souls are at stake. People are making decisions. People are without the knowledge of the gospel. You'd be surprised how many do not know the gospel. What you know, which is just common knowledge to you, is not known by many in our own country, by many around the world. And that's not fair. That is just plain not fair. It's not right because there really is a savior. There really is one God. This is not a makeup. And so God will take us and he'll speak to us. He'll prophetically guide us. And sometimes he'll put us at risk. And when such words come, and they will, it will be our character that decides how we respond. It was occurring to me, what is it that constitutes a real prophet? You know, you might say, well, isn't that just sort of gifting or God sort of... And, but, but the Bible says that all of us can prophesy. Did you know that? Paul, Paul specifically says, for you can all prophesy one by one, each in turn, so that all may learn. Yeah, he says, I would that you all prophesied. He, he says that. So all of us can prophesy. But what sets apart a prophet or prophetess? I think it's character. Because here's the issue. When you go in a courtroom and raise your hands, what do you swear to? Tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So I hope you God. When you prophesy, it isn't just did you get the truth, but did you give the whole truth? Or did you? Or, and did you stop when God stopped? Or do we get nothing but the truth? How often have you listened to something that starts out in the Lord and at some point their temper took over? Or they, they, got, they, got, they got the floor and they're going to finish telling us what direction's up. It's flesh. What makes a prophet? Do you have people in your life, if you want an honest opinion, you know who you can go to. And if you don't want an honest opinion, by the way, that's not who you'll ask. You know, like, how does this look? <laughs> My daughters, you know, every so often they come, okay, daddy, I need an honest opinion. What do you think? I know you'll give it to me. <laughs> now, that's, I don't know if this is a compliment, you know. But, uh, well, um, I've seen worse. No, I'm just, just, I'm just, see, see, that's why they don't ask me much. No. no. I really try to see the bright side of it. But do you have people in your life that you would go to and you would ask because you know they would tell you the truth? I think that has everything to do with who's a prophet. Not just who can prophesy. Who do we trust? 
Who do we trust is not using that podium, as it were, that platform to scold us because they're angry? Who do we know who's speaking a word to us because they love us? They surrender to Christ. and They speak only because he's told them to. And they stop when he's done. Them we listen to. There's just something that resonates in them. That's, it keeps coming back to character. Second, his written word. The Bible contains many things that are hard to understand. We may find ourselves struggling to discover what God is saying in a biblical event that took place long ago and in a different culture than one we live in today. That's when we have to study a passage in order to hear the truth it contains. But the greatest struggle most of us have with the Bible is the bluntness with which it confronts our sin and the high standards of behavior it sets for us. Isn't that it? Isn't that why everyone's chafing? It requires us to live at high standards. It, it, it confronts us bluntly. We live in an ever-changing culture where something may be wrong today, but right tomorrow. But the Bible doesn't change. So sooner or later, it calls us to live in ways that put us on a different path than our culture. It forces us to make painful choices, either to please God or to please people. And again, it will be our character that decides how carefully we are willing to listen to God's written word. Psalm 1 makes a wonderful promise to those who choose rightly. Would you read this out loud with me? Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law does he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season. And its leaf will not wither. And whatsoever he does will prosper. Refuse, what, what, look at the first, th- first three there. How, blessed is the man that does first, well, what? Walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. What's that? Worldly wisdom. Who are you listening to? You listen to your Bible? Or are you listening to all the sources and voices of how you should live, how you should raise your family, how you should, etc., etc. Who are you listening to? Two voices. Which one? He says, how blessed is the man who does that? Walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of what? You don't follow people as they walk away from the ways of God. You don't do what they do. And, does, and then finally, it does what? Sits in the, or sitteth in the seat of the scornful are people who mock and laugh at the word of God. Isn't that silly, that old book? Just written by men, isn't it? Why would we follow an old book like that? We've got new books. We've got our phones. <laughs> refusing to follow the wisdom of the world, refusing to join others when they abandon the standards of God, refusing to mock when we don't understand the ways of God, our choices each of us must make before we can delight ourselves in the Bible. But the person to the person who follows God's written word, rather than our changing culture, God promises that they will remain full of life 
They will endure when everything around them is dying. And God will prosper every area of their life. Did you see it? He says, they will be like a tree which is planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Now, you and I just think of trees and around here, there's water everywhere. So you got to somehow get your mind out of the Northwest and go with me to the, to the, to the, to the, to the deserts of Israel. And, and there you have these dry wadis. And every part of Israel gets some rain, one, one to three inches maybe in some of the real dry places. But they will get it. And when they get it, they get a lot. All, you know, sort of all at once. It comes in events. And when that happens, those wadis fill with, become rushing rivers. And that water goes down into that sand and all. And, and you have along the banks of that wadi, you have acacia trees. Uh, you, you have uh, mesquite, you have a pecan, these, these, these trees. And they run their roots way down into that wet sand, way down below. So even when it's 120 degrees, everything is dying. It's, it's absolutely parched up here on, on top. That tree is not dying. The tree still has its leaf. And it still produces its, its uh, fruit in its season. I love that. And, and the, the psalmist here, I think it's David. The psalmist here says that the person who, de- who, who puts their roots into the word of God, who's drawing daily, morning and evening, drawing their life out of the Bible, is like one of those trees that's run its roots way down into that deep water. And even when everything is dying around them, even when the culture and the society, there's all of this around them, they aren't. That there is a unique blessing to you. If you and I will walk in the word of God, what's going on around us will not dry us up. That life will stay in us. And then it makes that wonderful promise. And whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. God will bless you. What doesn't matter. You can talk, we can talk all we want about the shaking that's going on around us. About, about the, you know, you can see God's frustration. <laughs> a lot of things are going on. But you live with your roots down into that water. You live with your roots into the word of God. Your life is being blessed. How many can vouch for that? So can I. It's almost embarrassing. You know, you watch this thing crashing, and then you're going, we're doing fine. Is that okay? You know, did I miss something? No, the roots are in the word of God. Those wonderful blessings belong only to those who, he says, listen carefully. His, and thirdly, his incarnate word. Jesus is God's word in human flesh. John tells us that in the opening verses of his gospel. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. When we see Jesus, we see the heart of the Father. When we listen to him speak, we are hearing truth spoken purely. And what, we hear, uh, and what we hear God's word in human flesh say to us includes some of the most difficult things of all. No one tells us how desperately lost we are more than Jesus. No one warns us of the eternal dangers we face if we refuse to repent and believe more than Jesus. 
And no one calls us to leave the pleasures of the, and safety of this world more completely than Jesus. Listen, would you read this with me? If anyone wishes to come after me, he must take up his cross daily and follow me. And once again, it will be our character that determines if we will listen to that voice. Will we let him tell us that we are sinners? Or will we walk away offended? Will we believe that he, it was our sins that sent him to the cross? Or will we argue that we're not that bad? Will we actually take up our cross daily and follow him? If God's prophetic word tells us truth that's hard to hear, if God's written word calls us to choose between pleasing him or the world, God's incarnate word looks us straight in the eye and says, come, follow me. Mary of Bethany. Mary of Bethany sat at his feet and listened. She let him say what he wanted to say, and she believed it. That's why she knew it was, he was going to die. That's why God could prophesy through her to comfort his son when no one else understood. Here's what Jesus said about her. Would you read it with me? Truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. He's challenging us to become like Mary. And we will if we listen carefully. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.